James Baker, Madeleine Albright, Warren Christopher, Colin Powell, these are people who are politicians, but not the kind of politicians that kiss babies or work the crowds or run for elected office. These people are more statesmen, diplomats, professionals who fill administrative posts in someone else's government. Likewise, Daniel was a professional statesman, a diplomat. He was born a Jew, but occupied powerful positions in both the Babylonian and Persian empires. He was once a slave, but became one of the most powerful men of his day. Daniel lived an amazing life. Even more importantly, he was an amazing man. Daniel would have made a great subject for one of those A&E autobiographies. And the distinguishing accomplishment in this man Daniel's life was that he remained a godly man even in the midst of an ungodly land, surrounded by ungodly people. Were his convictions tested? You betcha. Did he draw fire from his enemies? Absolutely. But did he prevail even in the face of opposition? You can count on it. We need Daniels today. Men and women, Mr. Daniels and Ms. Daniels, who aren't afraid to mix and mingle with the world, yet are determined to retain biblical convictions and a strong witness for Jesus Christ. We need people who will invade modern culture with the truth, the unchanging truth and enduring love of Jesus Christ without being tainted by the world's influence. We need men and women who are willing to be a Daniel even in the lion's den. Here's a poem by Philip Bliss that will get us started tonight. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. I hope to challenge you tonight to dare to be a Daniel. The story begins in 605 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, wages war on the western front and takes the city of Jerusalem. The powerful king imprisons the Judean ruler, Jehoiakim, and he loots the temple of Jehovah. Nebuchadnezzar took the Lord's treasures back to Babylon and placed them in the temple of his own idols. But in addition to these temple jewels, Nebuchadnezzar also takes back to Babylon royal Jews, jewels and Jews. When the Babylonians conquered a people, it was their policy to choose out from the captives, the cream of the crop, the finest young men, to train them and to employ them in the court of the king of Babylon. The guys selected were generally 14, 15 years old. Along the level of a high school freshman, the healthiest, the best looking, the brightest, the most teachable, the most adaptable young men. The king would take those in the who's who of high school students. And he found at least four young Hebrews that fit those qualifications, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The goal of the Babylonians, understand, was to strip their captives of their former identities and to indoctrinate them with Babylonian culture and custom. And the brainwashing lasted three years. They were uprooted from their family and friends. 
They were taught a new language. They learned Babylonian curriculum. They were even given new names, pagan names at that. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were names that referred to their faith in God. But Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were names that spoke of pagan idols. I'm not so sure if you get to heaven and you bump into these guys and you call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they might get insulted. So remember those names, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. That's how they would prefer to be referred to. The idea, though, from the Babylonians' viewpoint was to break them down, to give them a new identity, a Babylonian identity. And since they were given over, we're told, to Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, some people feel that in addition to all of this, they were also castrated and made eunuchs. This was customary for the oriental kings. This is how they made sure that their servants didn't seduce the beauties from the royal harem. They castrated their young men. Imagine, though, the trauma that all these things caused these young boys. And when you think of all of that trauma, you know, we're tempted to expect and even justify for them a little compromise. Daniel, you've got an excuse to give in just a little bit. But what we learn quickly in the book is that Daniel wasn't looking for excuses. Yes, a lot had changed in Daniel's life, but there was one thing that did not change, and that was his commitment to God. Understand, Daniel was an undergrad living on campus at Pagan University. For three years, his room and board consisted of unclean foods. He knew that it would be wrong for him to eat the king's cuisine. Will he buckle under or will he stand up? Verse 8 tells us what happens. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. At first, Daniel wasn't sure what to do, how he would handle the king's diet. But he knew what he wouldn't do. He would never defile his body. He would never displease his Lord. Being a Jew, Daniel was bound by the dietary laws in the Old Testament. And Daniel purposed in his heart not to participate in anything that would disobey God. You know, Daniel's actions prove that he knew where to draw the line. In many ways, Daniel had been assimilated into Babylonian culture. He spoke like a Babylonian, dressed like a Babylonian, learned Babylonian protocol, occupied a Babylonian post, answered to a Babylonian name. But understand, Daniel never became a Babylonian at heart. Daniel lived in Babylon. But here's the key. Babylon never lived in Daniel. Daniel's life is a model for you and me. As Christians, we need to know where to draw the line. Yes, we are in the world. And it's okay for us to speak the lingo and dress the fashion and participate in customs and enjoy aspects of culture. Just as long is we don't adopt for ourselves the values and the appetites and the desires that are a part of the world yet contrary to the Word of God. We too live in Babylon, and that's okay. 
But what's wrong is when we let Babylon live in us. The key was Daniel's heart, you see. That's the key for you and me. In his heart, he was a child of God. And he was true to that identity no matter the circumstances. He purposed in advance that there would be no compromise in his commitment to God. Guys, there's a point for all of us where cultural assimilation becomes spiritual compromise and we have to guard against crossing that line. You've got to know where to draw it. Daniel purposed in his heart not to eat the king's food, but then he proposed an alternative to his superior. And if we're going to live in a pagan world and maintain a potent witness, this is a skill that we need to learn. How to appeal to people in authority. This is so important. The chief eunuch was responsible for these young men. And the diet that the king had prescribed was intended to make them stronger and healthier. If they failed to measure up to the king's expectations, it could cost the chief eunuch his own head. And so Daniel comes on his turf, addresses his concerns. He proposes a test. Let the Hebrews eat the clean foods, the veggies, the water for 10 days. And then put them up alongside their peers and see who's stronger, see who's healthier. You see, here's the modern day application. Let's say your sales manager comes into the office tomorrow and tells you that it's time that you started exaggerating those claims a little bit. It's okay to tell a lie or two in order to push the product to increase the sales. Well, when he comes to you along those lines, why don't you propose a test? What he wants is a better bottom line. What he wants is increased sales. So ask him for 10 days to do it your way. Then be honest and trust God for the increase. And then in the end, see who sold the most. You are the other salesman. This is real faith in action. Hey, if God wants you to work there, <laughs> he'll make it happen. You've got to trust him. But the one thing that's not an alternative is to violate the word of God. Be a Daniel. Verse 15 tells us that Daniel and his buddies passed the test. They appear healthier than their peers. Daniel was faithful to God and God was faithful to Daniel. Verses 17 through 20 records the outcome of Daniel's three years at Pagan University. Verse 17, As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And when the king interviewed them, they were ten times better than the other wise men. You know, if you attend a secular university, take heart. It's frustrating to go to school each day in a godless environment and study a worldly curriculum. But it was Daniel's years at Pagan U that prepared and positioned him to be used mightily for God. God wants Daniels who can invade pagan places with godly testimonies. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has a dream. Verse 1 says that it startled him so that it woke him up. You've ever had those dreams in the middle of the night where you just you know, you woke up, snapped back. Oh, oh, it was just a dream. That's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. 
And according to custom, he called together his magicians and his astrologers and his sorcerers, his wise men, to interpret his dream. He gathers all the experts from the psychic hotline together at one time to interpret his dream. Remember, Babel was the birthplace for the occult. And the city was full of these occult practitioners, many of which were employed by the royal court. But this was where the new king, Nebuchadnezzar, broke with custom. For he had seen his superstitious father, Nabopolassar, take the word of these magicians, hook, line, and sinker. But he had long suspected that their supposed powers were bogus. He was just waiting on the opportunity to put it to the test. Usually the king would reveal the dream. Then the wise men would go to work on their interpretation, you know, their own invention. But Nebuchadnezzar demands that these wise men reveal to him both the dream and its interpretation. This way he'll know if his counselors are legit. And to up the ante just a little, if they're unable to deliver, he's just going to kill them all, he says. Just clean house. Why keep them on the payroll if you've got no real power? It's amazing how suddenly these wise men get honest. (laughs) In verses 10 and 11, they plead with the king. There is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requires, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Of course, they had claimed to have a hotline to these very same gods, they they had said. (laughs) Their answer made Nebuchadnezzar so angry that he ordered the captain of his royal guard, Arioch, to carry out their immediate execution. And so wise men started dropping like flies. Remember, though, Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, though they remained devoted to the one true God, to Nebuchadnezzar, they were just four more magicians. And all this meant that the king's threat also put their lives at stake. Apparently, all this had gone on without Daniel's knowledge. But Daniel knows Arioch, and the king's captain tells him what's happened. And that's when Daniel, in verse 16 of chapter 2, rushes into the king and asks him for a little time to reveal the dream. He buys some time. Apparently, the king had enough respect for Daniel that he granted him a reprieve. And I love what Daniel does next. Verse 17 tells us, Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. In other words, he walks through the door and he says, guys, get on your knees, we got to pray. God is faithful to Daniel. And he reveals to him both the dream and the interpretation in a night vision. Daniel's song of praise is recorded in verses 20 through 23. Wonderful verses for you to read when you get home. When Daniel appears, though, to King Nebuchadnezzar, he gives him the glory. And I I like that. He doesn't take any credit himself. He gives God the glory. And he says to the king in verses 27 and 28, 
The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king, but catch this. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Just a word to you, you teenagers, when you think you're doing something that your mom and dad will never know, there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. Let's keep that in mind. Here's the vision that Nebuchadnezzar sees. He sees a giant image of a man with a head of gold, with arms and chest of silver, with a belly and thighs of bronze, with legs of iron, then feet partly of iron and partly of clay. A stone, we're told, cut without hands, strikes the feet of this giant image, and it crumbles in pieces. The fragments blow away, and the stone that struck the image grows into a great mountain that fills the whole earth. What a dream. And here's the interpretation. This image represents the Gentile nations that will rule the world, the world-dominating empires. The head of gold is Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar, who reigned from 605 to 536 B.C. The chest and arms of silver represent Babylon's successor, the Medo-Persian Empire, who ruled from 536 to 333 B.C. The Persians were conquered by the belly and thighs of bronze, or Alexander Great, and the Greeks, who ruled from 333 to 168 B.C., who were then succeeded by the legs of iron, or Rome, who eventually, just as you have two legs, Rome split into two empires, east and west, and governed from 168 B.C. until around the 4th century A.D. It's interesting, though, since the fall of Rome, there hasn't been a world-encompassing, world-governing empire. Ambitious men have tried to rule the world. Charlemagne, Napoleon, Hitler, all of them tried and failed. Yet the Bible predicts a final world-dominating empire. There's still the feet, partly of iron and partly of clay. And it is at the point of the feet that a stone will strike and destroy the whole image. Now, you know that throughout the Scriptures, the stone is symbolic of the Messiah. He is the stone cut out without hands or without human intervention. He is of supernatural origins, and indeed Jesus is. And it is in the days of this last world-governing empire, which I believe is yet to come, obviously, Jesus the Messiah will return to earth, and he will destroy the kingdoms of man that have ruled the world, and he will establish in their place a great mountain, which is the kingdom of God that will fill the whole earth. Obviously, this final empire is still future. And Nebuchadnezzar sees it as a mixture of iron and clay. The iron, remember, the iron legs speaks of Rome. And so this last world-governing empire will be somewhat of a Roman revival. The clay speaks of humanity in general. And thus, this last empire reflects either the boundaries or the demographics of ancient Rome tied together in loose alliance with the rest of the world. And it is amazing 
that we see just such a political configuration forming in our modern era. Not since Roman times has Europe been unified. And yet today, the nations of Europe have joined together in a European community. And that alliance of nations is growing into a global power. This could be the kingdom of iron mixed with clay foreseen by Nebuchadnezzar and interpreted by Daniel. The scope of the king's dream and Daniel's interpretation is indeed mind-boggling. It traces the Gentile nations from the days of Nebuchadnezzar to the last days. Daniel chapter 2 stands out in my mind as one of the most amazing prophecies in all the Scripture. It's interesting, the outcome of Daniel's interview with Nebuchadnezzar He nails the dream and then its interpretation. And that's when the king tells him in verse 47, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets. Nebuchadnezzar goes on to promote Daniel, who in turn promotes his buddies, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. And suddenly a slave from Judah is sitting in the gate of the king of Babylon representing Nebuchadnezzar in his affairs of state. What an amazing turn of circumstances. Notice 2 verse 48. Daniel is made chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Remember that detail when you get over to Matthew chapter 2 and find that the wise men from the east came searching for a king that they had been told would be born in Bethlehem. And where do you think they got that bit of information? Obviously from their mentor, the Hebrew prophet Daniel, who had at one time been the chief administrator over those very same wise men. At the end of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar falls on his face before Daniel. He gives glory to Daniel's God. But a humble king turns into a haughty man in chapter 3. For verse 1 tells us, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. Now if you're using the Babylonian cubit, which was about 21 inches, the image then would have been 105 feet tall by ten and a half feet wide. And we're told he set it up in the plain of Dura, which was about six miles south of ancient Babel. Now, why in the world would Nebuchadnezzar go to all the trouble of erecting a golden image ten stories high? In a word, it was arrogance. Remember the king's dream back in chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar was what? He was the head of gold. Here, though, he builds his own image. And guess what? It's gold from head to toe. The implication that Nebuchadnezzar is making is that God is wrong. That the Babylonian Empire will never be succeeded by another. That it will last forever. This image is not... One empire following another, it's Babylon forever and ever. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is saying. And let me give you one more insight into the king's pride and vanity. 
Notice the height to width ratio of Nebuchadnezzar's image. It's about 10 to 1. The normal human has about a 5 to 1 ratio, making the king's likeness abnormally skinny. He's not going to build a statue of a fat Nebuchadnezzar. It's going to make him skinny. I told you he was arrogant and prideful. Nebuchadnezzar commands his subjects and officials to journey to the plain of Dura. And at the sound of the orchestra, all the people fall to their faces and worship this golden image. And if you're tempted to resist, Nebuchadnezzar issues a warning. You'll be thrown into a fiery furnace. You'll become a crispy critter. Guys, this trip they made to the plain of Dura was what you and I would call a real ego trip on the part of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, imagine a picture in your mind's eye. There are 300,000 people stretched out across the desert floor of Dura. When on cue, all of a sudden, they all fall and bow their faces in the sand. You look across the plain, and all you see are 300,000 bowed backs, except there they are, three Hebrews still standing on their feet. Talk about sticking out in a crowd. Of course, this scene has been repeated millions of times since. It's repeated every day at school. It's repeated every day in the office or at the block party. Ninety-nine percent of the people are going to bow to the gods of convenience and comfort and conformity, except for a few brave folks who are more concerned about pleasing God than they are pleasing man. There are a few who will dare to be different. People who will stick up for God, even if it means sticking out in a crowd. Guys, are you among the crowd with your face in the sand? Or are you one of those three who have chosen to stand up for God? It was the Babylonians who then went and ratted on Shadrach, Meshach, and away we go. I mean, to bed we go. No, that's what I say after I tell this story to my kids at night. How about Abednego? The tattletales that inform the king. They tell them that there are some mutineers in the camp. And when Nebuchadnezzar knows that there are men who have defied him and have dared to be different, he blows a gasket. He becomes furious. Indeed, away we go. He calls for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he reads them the riot act. He's got this fiery furnace, remember, and he'll have barbecued Jew if they're not willing to get with the program. And I love their answer. It is a classic of faith. Verse 16. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. We have no need to answer you in this matter. Why? You remember Daniel chapter 1. He purposed in his heart not to defile himself. You see, they've got no need to answer because they've already made up their mind. Courageous obedience makes up its mind ahead of time. 
You're going to make convictions and make decisions tonight that you're going to live with tomorrow. If you don't, if you wait till tomorrow to make them, you might not make them. You've got to make them tonight. You've got to decide them in advance. If you want to make commitments and form your convictions in the heat of battle, you will have waited too late. They continue in verse 17. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, notice that, but if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. This is real faith in action. It's one thing that God to believe that God will deliver you from the fire. It's another thing to believe that he will deliver you through the fire. Here's the key. These men weren't trusting in a specific outcome or in a certain expectation of what God would do. They were trusting in God himself. I'm sure they would have preferred a little fire insurance. But they were open to whatever choice for deliverance God might make, either from the fire or through the fire. That wasn't the issue. The issue from them Their immediate priority was not their deliverance, but their faithfulness. Why is it we get so focused on our deliverance when what we're going to live with forever is our faithfulness? Stuttered Kennedy was a World War II chaplain who served the soldiers on the front lines in France. And he wrote this letter to his 10-year-old son. It reminds me of what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said to the king. He said, the first prayer I want you to say for me is not, God, keep daddy safe, but God, make daddy brave. And if he has hard things to do, make him strong to do them. Son, life and death don't matter, but right and wrong do. Daddy dead is daddy still, but daddy dishonored before God is something too awful for words. I suppose you and mom would like to put into a put into your prayer a bit about safety too well put it in afterwards for it really doesn't matter nearly as much as doing what is right and that is exactly what Shadrach Meshach and Abednego were saying to this king their response pleased god but it angered Nebuchadnezzar all the more so much so that the king ordered his men to stoke the furnace seven times hotter The blaze grew so intense. The soldiers who bound Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and threw them into the furnace got too close to the fire and they were scorched to death by the flames. But notice an amazing verse, chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. We're told King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast... Three men bound into the midst of the fire. They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And from the form, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Without a doubt, this is another pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. He appears alongside them in the fire, Jesus promised to never leave us or forsake us, even in the fiery trials of our lives. And notice verse 27. 
When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego exit from the furnace, we're told the hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. The fire had had no power over them. The only item on these men that burned were the ropes that had bound them. And that's what the fiery trials of life will do. They'll burn off the impediments, the ropes that are holding us back, that are keeping us down, that are preventing us from growing and serving God more effectively. Again, the experience impresses Nebuchadnezzar with the power of the one true God. And he says in verse 29, there is no other God who can deliver like this. And he issues a royal edict making it illegal to say a word against the God of Daniel, the God of the Jews. Now, there's one other point here that we need to make before we go on. Where is Daniel in chapter 3? It's all about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their faith. Surely Daniel was not one who bowed before the golden image. I believe that Daniel was away on business. Obviously, at the time, he was off dealing with affairs of state. But I don't believe Daniel's absence is an accident. The story is not only historical, but it is also typological. And what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego undergo will one day be experienced by all Jews all around the world. In the last days, the Jewish nation will go through a fiery trial called the Great Tribulation. A Nebuchadnezzar, like the Antichrist, will try to annihilate the Jews once they refuse to bow down before him. But God will orchestrate a supernatural deliverance. And if Nebuchadnezzar is a type of the Antichrist, and the three Hebrews are a type of the tribulation Jews, then who does Daniel represent? I believe he represents the church who will be away taking care of business. We will have been raptured during that time, and we'll be in heaven with Jesus. Daniel chapter 4 is a unique chapter in Scripture because it was written by a Gentile king, Nebuchadnezzar. Before this passage became Daniel chapter 4, it was a royal edict, a signed affidavit written by the most powerful man on the planet at the time. Before it became Bible, it was read in every Babylonian town and village. Imagine if Saddam Hussein, the ruler in that part of the world today, distributed all over the nation of Iraq an edict acknowledging his own sin and pride. It would send shockwaves around the world, wouldn't it? Well, Daniel chapter 4 in Nebuchadnezzar's confession had an even greater impact at the time it was written. For in this chapter, Nebuchadnezzar talks about another dream and Daniel's interpretation. He sees a tall tree grow up and provide fruit and shade and shelter. But an angel appears and commands that the tree be chopped down. All that's left of it are stumps and roots. And that stump became wet with the dew. And it was given the heart of an animal rather than the heart of a man. And it was humbled for seven years. And in verses 19 through 27, we find Daniel's interpretation. The tree is Nebuchadnezzar. He'll be cut down and humbled. 
The monarch will be driven from men and reduced to an animal's existence for seven years until he learns. Catch this in verse 26, that heaven rules. I like that. Until he learns that heaven rules. In these chapters, Nebuchadnezzar has acknowledged, even admired the true God. But he's yet to bow down and worship God until we get to chapter 4. And now that's about to change. Verses 30 and 31 record the exact moment that Nebuchadnezzar's dream became a real-life nightmare. The king was walking on the roof of his palace, admiring the city that he had built, when suddenly the king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. In verse 33, that very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. The king of Babylon was stricken with a temporary insanity. Imagine standing outside the White House lawn, looking through those black iron gates, watching George W. Bush crawling around on his hands and legs, acting like some kind of a wild animal, acting like some kind of wolf, acting like our last president. Oh, oh, wait, I mean... Well, there was Nebuchadnezzar growling and eating grass and chasing rabbits. It was an awful sight. You know, there are recognized psychological conditions that do fit Nebuchadnezzar's symptoms. Boanthropy is when a person thinks he's an ox. Cyanthropy is when a person thinks he's a dog. And lycanthropy is when a person thinks he's a wolf. You've heard of werewolves. Nebuchadnezzar became a permanent Mr. Hyde. Jewish tradition says that Daniel cared for Nebuchadnezzar during these seven years when he was out to pasture, you might say. For God had told Nebuchadnezzar, God had told Nebuchadnezzar in the dream, and Daniel had interpreted that after the seven years, the king would return to the throne. And no doubt Daniel used his political clout to make room for the king's return. The end of the story proves that Nebuchadnezzar became a repentant man. He closes his testimony with a wonderful expression of submission and surrender to God. And I personally believe that we're one day going to see King Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. The king of all the earth became the servant of the one true God. Here's the voice of personal experience out of the mouth of Nebuchadnezzar himself. Verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And catch this, and those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. <laughs> the voice of experience. A pastor was attending a Bible conference one weekend and was absent from church that Sunday. 
His secretary placed a notice in the church's announcements explaining the pastor's absence. She meant to type, Our pastor is away this week attending a study conference. But instead, she left off the Y so that the announcement read, Our pastor is away this week attending a stud conference. But worse was the rest of the announcement. Please keep him in your prayers. Well, in chapter 5, Daniel attends a stud conference to teach a Bible study. Another king of Babylon named Belshazzar throws a wild party, a drunken orgy, a banquet full of wine and women. I'm telling you, a stud conference. And just as the party really gets out of hand... It gets interrupted by the hand of God. God crashes this party. Chapter 5 opens with the party already in progress. First, though, realize what has happened politically in Babylon between chapters 4 and chapters 5. Nebuchadnezzar is now dead. We're 23 years later. His son Belshazzar is now sitting on the throne. For the last 20 years, Babylon has been at war with the Medes and Persians. And for the last two years, the city of Babylon has been under siege. You would think Belshazzar would be in a panic. But to the contrary, he thought that he was invincible. His city was huge. It was about 15 square miles. There was room within the walls to grow their own crops. The Euphrates River flowed under the walls of Babylon, providing a constant water supply. And speaking of those walls, they were impregnable, 311 feet high, 87 feet thick. You could line 11 cars abreast on top of the wall of Babylon. It was surrounded by a 30-foot wide moat. Historians say Babylon had food reserves that would have lasted them 20 years. In fact, Belshazzar's party is his way of showing off his smug self-confidence. It's bad enough that King Belshazzar was a playboy, a boozer, a party animal. But his undoing was his blasphemy. Here's a man who never learned when to say when. In the midst of the party, Belshazzar calls for the sacred vessels. We read about them in chapter 1, verse 1. That his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar had plundered from the temple in Jerusalem. He brings them out in the midst of this party in order to make mockery of the God of the Hebrews, in order to boast in the idols of Babel. These were the cups and the saucers, remember, that had been dedicated to the sacrifices of the one true God. And now Belshazzar is turning them into beer mugs. And in the midst of all this blasphemy, suddenly the fingers of a man's hand appear writing on the plastered wall behind the king's throne. The music stops. Glasses drop all around the room. People begin to choke on their food. A gasp goes up. And King Belshazzar realizes that the party is over. He is scared to death. We're told his knees begin to knock. In fact, verse 6 says, The king's countenance changed. And his thoughts troubled him, 
so that the joints of his hips were loosened. In other words, it scared the stuffing out of him. For whom the hanging gardens of Babylon were created by her husband, by the way. She enters the hall and she recalls Daniel. And it shows Belshazzar's heart that he had never thought of Daniel prior to now. She says in verse 11, There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And she goes on to remind Belshazzar of Daniel's skills and interpretation. When Daniel enters the hall, the king promises him royal robes, a chain of gold, a powerful position in the kingdom of Babylon. We'll discover in a moment why all the king offered would end up becoming worthless before the night was over. Daniel's an old guy by now, at least 80 years old, maybe older. And he doesn't mince words. He doesn't have time. He just lays into Belshazzar with a blistering attack on his pride and his arrogance. He hasn't learned a thing from his grandfather's experience. He, too, has become proud and haughty. And verse 23 sums up Belshazzar's blasphemies that very night. Daniel says, And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your Lord, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Give it to him, old boy. Daniel's just laying it out. And in verse 25, we're told the inscription that God wrote on the wall. Meaning, meaning, tekel euphorsin. These were Aramaic words. Meaning means numbered. Tekel means weighed. Euphorsin means divided. And so what God was saying to Belshazzar is, Belshazzar, your number is up. You've been weighed and God considers you a lightweight. And as a result, your kingdom will be divvied up to the Medes and the Persians. Historians tell us that that night was October the 12th, 539 B.C. While Belshazzar was inside the city partying, the Persian general Ugabaru was outside plotting his attack. I love that, Ugabaru. Ugabaru sent a crew of engineers upstream. He knew that he could never get over the walls of Babylon. But why not under the walls? And the Persian engineers diverted the Euphrates River into a man-made lake. And the troops of the Persians entered Babylon through the dried-up riverbed under the walls. The Medes and the Persians conquered the city of Babylon that very night without even a battle. It's a fact of history. As verse 30 tells us, that very night Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain and Darius the Mede received the kingdom. Here's a little poem. At the feast of King Belshazzar and 1,000 of his lords, while they drank from golden vessels as the book of truth records, 
On that night, as they reveled in the royal palace hall, they were seized with consternation at the hand upon the wall. So our deeds are recorded. There's a hand that's writing now. Give your heart to Jesus, to his royal mandate bow. For the day is fast approaching. It must come to one and all when the sinner's condemnation will be written on the wall. Think about it. Daniel is now in his mid-80s. He has outlived the Babylonian Empire. And he is appointed governor by the new rulers. The Medo-Persian ruler, Darius, makes him one of the three governors of the land of Babylon, a very important post indeed. Daniel reminds me of the lady who turned 100 years old. And she was asked if she had any kids. And her answer was, not yet. Proving that age isn't a number, it's a state of mind. Daniel just refused to get old. He was like a good baseball glove. He didn't get older. He got better. And in chapter 6, verse 3, we're told, Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. seems that wherever Daniel worked, he always ended up getting promoted. Now, you know the other governors were bound to get jealous. In fact, they try to dig up some dirt on old Dan. In verse 4, we're told they could not charge or could not find a charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Daniel had no girlfriends on the side, no irregularities on his tax returns. He even paid his Social Security tax for his domestic, domestic workers. Daniel was blameless. Oh, that our enemies, our accusers might have the same problem with us. We've tried, but we just can't dig up any dirt on him. What if we hired a private investigator to spend the next 30 days turning your life upside down? Think about it. What if he put a wiretap on your phone? What if he put a surveillance camera in your house and in your car? What if he scanned your hard drive? What kind of dirt would he find? Look at what his enemies conclude about Daniel in verse 5. We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. The only way they can get rid of Daniel is to use his devotion to God to trap him. And so they go to work on King Darius's ego. They suggest that he make a law for 30 days that no one can pray or petition any god or man other than the great Darius. How flattering to the pagan king. And without even thinking it through, he agrees. King Darius signs the decree into law. And this is, is significant because under Babylonian rule, the king was supreme, whereas under Persian rule, the law was supreme. Under Babylonian rule, you, the king makes law, he could change law. But under Persian rule, once a law was made, that law stood. And not even the king could change it. That's very important later. 
And when Daniel heard about this law, guess what he did? He took his faith undercover? Nope. He went to the other extreme and started picketing City Hall. Nope. What did Daniel change? He changed nothing. Absolutely nothing. He simply did what he did every day. He continued to walk with God in the ways that the Lord had led him. I love it. The king's order had no effect on Daniel at all. Daniel was obeying another king, not this one. Verse 10 tells us what Daniel did. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home and in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Daniel walked with God in a habitual holiness. He just stuck with his convictions. That's all he did. (laughs) You remember from chapter 1, he had purposed in his heart. And Daniel never changed. Of course, the Babylonians were out in the bushes spying on Daniel. And as soon as he dropped to his knees, they're on their way to rat on him. I forget who it was. I believe it was Goober. On those Andy Griffin shows who would start running around saying, Citizens arrest! Citizens arrest! Citizens arrest! And they were wanting to make a citizen's arrest. Verse 14 tells us Darius' reaction when he realizes what he's done. When he heard these words, he was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. But all his efforts were to no avail. He could find no loopholes in the law. And as they lured Daniel into the lion's den, the king called out in verse 16, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. And in verse 17, Darius sealed the stone that they rolled across the mouth of the lion's den. It was as if King Darius was more afraid of foul play than he was those hungry lions that were in that den. It's interesting, throughout the chapter, there's no record of Daniel being nervous, Daniel being afraid, Daniel being upset. Think about it. Over the last seven decades... God had delivered Daniel so many times that he knew by now his plight would not be decided by the claws or teeth of lions, but it would be decided by the hand of God. When will we come to realize that same truth? Daniel was determined to rest in peace one way or the other. The king, on the other hand, he can't sleep. He fasts, he prays all night. You'd think the roles were reversed. You'd think that (laughs) Daniel would be the one resting in the palace while the king would be the one in the lion's den. But, of course, the next morning, Darius was the first to the lion's den. And he cried out to Daniel. And that's when he heard the old boy answer from the den in verse 21. Daniel says to the king, Oh, king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. Apparently, this den of lions had become a den of miracles. You know, we assume that God plagued the lions with a case of lockjaw. 
And that's what Daniel implied, that God shut the mouths of the lions. And I'm sure that was part of it. But you think about it, even if his, the lions had gotten some locked jaw, they still could have shredded Daniel with their paws. More went on. Apparently, God actually altered the nature of those animals. According to Isaiah chapter 11, One day the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And I believe Daniel got to see a millennial miracle happen in advance. <laughs> it reminds me of a little girl who heard the story of Daniel in the lion's den in Sunday school. And her teacher asked how Daniel could be so brave. And she said, Daniel wasn't afraid because he knew one of the lions was the lion of the tribe of Judah. And perhaps she was right. The angel that came to visit Daniel may have been, again, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. It would be nice to think so. You know, life in general is like a lion's den. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8 tells us that the devil is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. At times, trouble stalks us like a hungry lion. Every Christian will at some point spend a night or two with the lion's. And it's really for a good reason, for there is no better place to learn to trust God than in the lion's den. You see, that's where you learn the truth of Jesus' promise. I will never leave you or forsake you. There's no better place to learn that than in the lion's den. Verse 23 says that Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him. Because he believed in his God. You learn faith in the lion's den. In verse 24, King Darius makes another decree. He orders Daniel's enemies to be thrown into the lion's den. And just to prove that there was nothing wrong with the lion's appetites, before their bodies hit the floor, their bones are broken to pieces. Charles Spurgeon once said, It's a good thing those lions didn't eat old Daniel they would have choked on him. Daniel was half grit and half backbone. <laughs> Perhaps God was looking out for the lions. The chapter closes with Darius's declaration of faith. It seems another pagan ruler becomes a believer in the one true God through the witness of Daniel. The world today needs more Daniels. More men and women of faith and courage and commitment and conviction. Believers in Jesus who go out into secular society and make a stand for our Lord. Father, thank you for your word and for the study tonight. May we hide these things in our heart that we might not sin against you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.